As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 157 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. I was just giving you some real weird thumbs up. You were giving up. me some very weird thumbs up. I did the start recording, <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is your cue to start talking, and it was like, I never have, I've never done a thumbs up before in my life. Uh, what's up? How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I feel very slap happy this morning, yeah. really, so... Um, this episode is an interview I did with Annalie Newitz back at PEA, I think, our trips. We're so far back now from when I went to PEA and we right. went to LA that they're like blending together. Uh, Annalie Newitz, her debut novel just came out. It's called Autonomous, and it's a science fiction book. Uh, she's written a bunch of stuff before. And I got to geek out because she is one of the founding editors of io9.com. Uh, if you don't visit that, then you should because it's very like comic book and uh, science heavy. And they talk all the time about awesome like sci-fi TV shows and all sorts of stuff. But she also has recently kind of helped start another kind of website like that that she talks about. So I'll, I'm not going to get into it now because I don't want to tell you what I say in there in the you know the actual interview but she's really cool and I have read a lot more science fiction this year than I ever thought I was going to I think part of it was because of when I found out I was going to interview her yeah I didn't want to make a fool of myself that's so, fair yeah um, but she was wonderful and yeah all sorts of, of dorky, nerdy things we talk about. So. Well, you should listen to the science fiction episode. We did a couple weeks ago. If you want more good science fiction stuff, so. Yeah. Did anyone mention this book? I don't, I don't think, think so. I think they did, which is okay. Uh, also, not for nothing, and you guys won't see this, but she had the coolest hair. <laughs> she had, like, bright pink, awesome hair. Um we have a couple people around our office that have awesome colored hair, too. I know. I'm so jelly. Did you see one of our coworkers, actually, this morning, um, she's one of our three-headed SAS monsters. She hasn't been on in a while. But Sydney has, like, bright purple hair right now. Yep. And she's got incredible. good hair. And there are some people downstairs. There is a girl. It's so hard to maintain. That's the only reason I haven't done it. But, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a girl. I think she's on our support team. We have a big office. And we do. it's separated by upstairs, downstairs. Very Downton Abbey. <laughs> um... But I, so we don't interact with people downstairs all the time. But there's this girl on our support team. She has this gorgeous pink hair right now, and it's not just pink. It's like layers of pink. Like, is, it, is that called mermaid hair? I think. I'm not sure. But before that, she had like blue and green. And yep. I can never do it. But 
I think it's ironic. Like I would never think to like change the color of my hair, but I'll go get tattoos on my body, like on a moment's notice. It's uh... backwards. Um. Anyway. <laughs> That was a good tangent. If people <laughs> want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds, and they can email us directly at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. And if you're not following us yet on Instagram, which is understandable because we just started it, you definitely should because Jill has shown me some of the things she's going to post next week for Band Books Week. No, this week. This week. Yeah, this is Monday. Uh, some of the stuff she's going to post this week, and they are phenomenal. So yeah. don't miss that. Um and we're trying hard not to put the same content on both places to give you a reason to follow us. It's just That's just marketing. So, uh, Anything else you want to talk about before we let people get to the interview? Nope. Awesome. Okay, I hope you guys enjoy this chat I had with Annalene Newitz back at BEA on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi everyone, this is Adam again from Team Overdrive, and today I'm joined by Annalie Newitz, who is the tech culture editor at Ars Technica and the founding editor of io9. She was also the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo, and her debut science fiction novel, Autonomous, comes out later this year. So Annalie, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you start off by giving our listeners just a little introduction to Autonomous? So Autonomous is your basic futuristic tale of a pirate versus a robot. Of course. Um, probably read it all before but so this is uh, set about 150 years in the future and um, Jack is a pharmaceutical pirate who is kind of a Robin Hood figure she's uh, reverse engineering drugs from wealthy corporations and giving them to the poor and she's made a mistake and she's gotten on the radar of the corporation that she's stealing from and so they've sent after her a couple of agents one of whom is a robot named Paladin a newly born robot uh, and his human partner, Elias. And the book uh, alternates between the point of view of Jack and Paladin. And so as Jack is fleeing for her life across northern Canada, uh, Paladin and Elias are following her, and Paladin and Elias are developing a very intense emotional relationship. Right. I started laughing immediately because you said, I'm sure you've heard this all before, and I, having read this book, no one has read a book like this before. It's so, <laughs> I hope so. different and wonderful. Um, you were talking about Paladin, and he has this incredible understanding of humans from like a technical aspect and like a how our bodies work. Like he, he talks about there's things in there like um, how high caffeine levels will like potentially lead to people oversharing information. You have all these little things that I was like, oh my god, I, I do that when I'm overcaffeinated. I talk way too much. Me too. But so. <laughs> But then there's other parts of him where he's completely clueless. And were these things that you did, like, the little snippets of bits and pieces of things that he knew and didn't know? Did you, is, is that, like, knowledge that you had beforehand, or were you researching things like, what would be an interesting fact that Paladin would know about a human, but another thing he would have no idea about? I really identify a lot with Paladin because I think, like a lot of nerds, um, human interaction is sometimes a little bit of a mystery to me. And so Paladin kind of started as me thinking about, well, what would it be like if you really did have 
a lot of technical knowledge about human physiology and you had a lot of sensors so right. you could do things like look at galvanic skin response um, if you touch someone you could measure uh, hormones in their blood yeah. through like micro sampling of their blood um, but social interaction was just super confusing mm -hmm. because it's you can't really measure social interaction yeah. in a technological way and so for me Paladin is kind of more human than you might think right. but at the same time humans are a mystery to him Paladin is 98% of our offices at over we're, we're a tech company so it's like I was sitting there reading it and I was just like this is every single person I work with I know it I guess you're hitting your like this is the exact people that will love this book and the people that we work with um so the book has both points of view what was what went into you deciding not only to create these two specific characters but to have Jack and Paladin have their own points of view in the actual story itself. I really love novels that that do uh, alternating points of view just yeah. because I think it's especially for this kind of story which is fundamentally it has the structure of a thriller it takes place during a pretty short period of time it's about a three-week period right. um, it's a chase because Jack is running away and and Paladin and, and Elias are trying to catch her um, and so I wanted that sense of urgency and I really wanted to contrast the human perspective and the non-human perspective because that's a big part of this future yeah. world and so um, and also I just really admire authors like William Gibson who mm -hmm. always do that in their books you always get to switch back and forth yeah. between the points of view and it's just really fun mm -hmm. it's a great a great structure and I've heard lots of people say lots of authors say that it also gives you a nice like starting and stopping point from a, a writing standpoint like from the craft of writing itself and it's like get to the end you know I know that I just have to tell this part of this story for today to kind of finish up that chapter and then you know not only do you know that you're going to pick up where you left off but it also gives you like a nice finite goal I suppose as you know in like certain amounts of writing sessions that kind of thing that's really true because each chapter has to be a little arc Right. And if you know that when the chapter ends, you're going to switch to another point of view, mm -hmm. it does. It kind of keeps you honest. Right. Like, all right, this really can't. It can end on a cliffhanger, but yeah. it can't just kind of end mushily in the middle right. of a scene, you know? Oh, that's really funny. Um, so you have written for so many you know, different science and tech sites, and I mentioned you helped found io9, and uh, now you're a tech culture editor. So what does a day in your life look like when you're writing for these sites and we were talking about some of the articles you wrote before we started recording but is a lot of your day researching and kind of seeing what's going on in the, the tech culture world or is it trying to reach out to context that you know i guess i'm just it's such a different style of writing than writing a, a fictional novel it depends. I mean, one of the things that's uh, weird but and challenging about doing journalism is that every day is a little bit different. Sure. So sometimes a story might just arrive mm -hmm. and, you know, you just get lucky. Someone contacts you with a piece of information and then you just go full bore into that story. Yeah. Sometimes it really is like I'm hunting around. Mm -hmm. um, I read a lot of scientific journals yeah. because... Um, a, it's really fun, and you find out a lot of really obscure shit that's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, but also, that's a great starting point for a story. It might lead you to a researcher who's doing something really interesting. Um, sometimes it's, again, it's super obvious, like, the Wonder Woman movie is coming out this week. Like, yep. that is my week. I'm yeah. thinking about Wonder Woman. I wanted to be Wonder Woman when I was growing up. This is, like, really clear what I am doing with uh -huh. my Friday. <laughs> I 
being here, oh, so at time of recording, like I said, this is it's coming out this week. Not getting to see it tomorrow is killing me. I'm so yeah, sorry. It's a, no, it's not. You know, it's not your fault. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, and actually, my my wife is a very tall, dark-haired woman. Like she identifies very strongly with Wonder Woman. So she was actually debating while I'm working tomorrow at Book Expo America. She's like, I might find a theater, and I was like, please, please don't do that. Please don't rub it in my face that you're gonna get to see it before me. Oh man. Um, so talking about io9. That's one of my websites, my morning stops, you know. It's, um, how did that come along, like the creation of it? it? It's one of the first things I think of when it comes to like science and, and tech culture as a website, but when it, cre- when it was created, I don't think there were as many of those types of sites around. Would that be No, accurate? I mean, there was nothing like it, mm-hmm. and in pretty much I built the site that I wanted to be reading, mm-hmm. and... Um, we spent a really long time conceiving of it. Uh, I actually was working on it with Nick Denton, who was running Gawker Media. I was working on it for about six months before we launched it. And really, like, three months was just conception, like, what yeah. will be part of the site. And for me, the main thing that I always wanted was to make sure it combined coverage of science fiction and culture with coverage of science. And that there that it would have that fiction and nonfiction mm-hmm. combination, uh, which is how my brain works. And my big inspiration was Omni Magazine, mm-hmm. which was a very popular magazine when I was a little kid in the 70s and 80s, and also combined fantastic science fiction writing with cutting edge science and futurism. And it just, I remember reading it as a kid and it just having it blow my mind. Yeah. And so I just wanted to pay homage. And I love how you, you put, talk about the, the, the fiction and nonfiction kind of blended together. And the same thing with you know your, your current website and Ars Technica. It's very much, like for someone like me who I love science fiction books and fantasy books and, and the movies and I have the base level of understanding about actual science. And so reading these websites, I might see an article about Wonder Woman and be like, oh, it's amazing. And then I might see an article about you know scientists have discovered you know a clustered new planets that might contain you know potential like life forms and all of a sudden I'm reading about that and I'm just as interested so it's I love the idea that you blended it together and it, it brings people that might just be looking initially for like the comic-con type stuff that we're talking about and then they get the science aspect as well I just think it's such a wonderful that's thing. the goal is to you know trick people into learning <laughs> new stuff and people come from both sides like right. some people come in and it's like I'm here to read about movies mm-hmm. or video games and then they get hooked on a story that's about you know, some kind of obscure way of installing Linux on your phone or something like that. <laughs> um, and they learn about that or they learn about a new planet or they learn about an ancient civilization. But people also come the other way mm-hmm. too, especially at Ars Technica. Like someone might come in to read about a new um, medical breakthrough yeah. and then they wind up reading about a comic book yeah. and they discover a comic book that they never knew about. And I hear about that from a lot of people who are like, I found a book mm-hmm. through your site and I never knew I wanted to read this book. And I'm like, yes. That's amazing. Con- Version. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, of all the, the the profiles and articles and things you've written for either either site, is there one that kind of sticks out as something you're most proud of, or even maybe something that was incredible? I know this is such a broad, like wide, far scoping question, but like, maybe something that when you started the article you didn't think it'd be that much, and then you kind of it came turned into something else. Or just something you're really proud of. I'm just gonna keep rambling because I can see you thinking. And then no, I'll... I'm thinking. Um, so I think. In the last year, Mm -hmm. the article that I'm most proud of is a piece that I did for Ars Technica about an archaeological excavation at Cahokia, which is um, 
Uh, it was an indigenous city about a thousand years ago. It was really hopping about a thousand years ago um, across the river from St. Louis. It's in southern Illinois. Um, and I had been reading about this city for a really long time and managed to track down two archaeologists who were doing an excavation there last summer. And they let me come and join them That's and uh, watch them discover a bunch of really cool artifacts. I actually got to learn how to do um, the special kind of shovel scraping that they yeah. do to excavate. Um, and I'm going back in a couple of weeks to see what they're, they're excavating in the same place. So at the end of the summer, they cover it all up to protect it. Mm -hmm. So they'll have re-excavated and they'll be going deeper and looking at different parts of this particular neighborhood that they're excavating. So it's kind of like chapter two. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, yeah. that's so interesting. It was really, really fun. And I just, I learned so much and I got to taste a thousand year old barbecued deer bones. Seriously? So. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the ways, because when you're digging stuff up out of the ground, sometimes, I mean, it's a thousand years old, right? So it looks right. like a lump. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know if it's a piece of pottery or a bone because yeah. a lot of the stuff that we're digging up is trash pits. Mm -hmm. So people threw their bones and their broken pottery in there. And so if you want to know if it's a bone, you touch it to your tongue because bones are porous and uh -huh. they kind of stick to your tongue a little bit. So we were trying to figure out, is this a bone or not? And so I, I licked this bone. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. So it's not dangerous. I didn't get sick or anything, but yeah, I have now licked a thousand year old barbecued deer that's bone. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, okay, so how do you go from covering science and, and tech culture and all these things to writing a book about robots and pharmaceutical space pirates? Like, how does one go? I, I don't want to do the, the hokey, where did your idea come from? Because that's a lazy, it's a lazy question, but like, how do you go from one to the other? Was it like maybe what was the writing process like? It was actually really natural because it is true that my work on science and tech uh, feeds right into my imagination about the future. And I do think that in order to really have a realistic vision of the future, you have to have a good understanding of history. Yeah. And so even when I'm looking at an ancient civilization, I'm thinking about the fact that, well, we are the future of that civilization. Mm -hmm. And that having that understanding really helps me think about, all right, if we're the past of a future, what, what might that yeah. look like? What would those changes look like? Um, a lot of the technologies in my novel are things that I've written about mm -hmm. um, in my nonfiction and my journalism. I've written a lot about bots, um, and I've written a lot about um, labor issues in tech. Um, sure. My book deals a lot with... Um, workers who are addicted to their work and yeah. kind of oppressed and um, and so it's actually great I mean it having a fictional outlet where I can kind of say whatever I want and right. have a lot of opinions huh? uh, which in journalism like you can't just come out with your yeah. opinion you have to be you have to try to be somewhat more objective, somewhat objective or, yeah. or even-handed mm -hmm. um, and uh, but I don't have to be that way in my fiction so it's awesome I can just be like well this is bad yeah I just think this is wrong well, so and then okay but what some of the pharmaceutical stuff that's in here there's so like is that the same thing did you have that knowledge because you've written about it there's a lot I don't want to call it like heavy I'm not trying to scare anyone away because it's not it's very like, easy to process but you explain things in such a way that I'm like okay Annalie did not make up potential, like what these potential drugs could do. But at the same time, this store is 150 years in the future. Yeah. So a lot of the book deals with what addiction does to your brain, because yeah. the the main drug that the characters are worried about is getting people addicted to work, and it's very deadly. It has deadly side effects. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked to a lot of addiction experts. Okay. Um, I talked to a couple of neuroscientists who were very patient with me, <laughs> and I said, you know. 
if somebody were looking at neurons, mm-hmm. like what would that look like? Yeah. And they actually they told me and they were they talked about how as you're looking at a neuron, you can actually see see it growing mm-hmm. and you can see it um, you know changing in real time. Yeah. And so I actually have a scene like that in the novel. So right. I did do a lot of research for it um, and and you know bless the hearts of scientists who are willing to talk to weirdos who are like, well, you know, if, oh. imagine a fake drug that did this stuff. Um, and they, they helped out. That's so, incredible. I mean, I'm sure some of it is wrong, but that's, that's well, I mean, <laughs> that's I, not their fault. It, also, I don't can't think of anyone who is going to read this book and be like, I'm going to try and disprove these these minute things that Annalise spent a lot of time looking uh, and, and into. And it takes place in 150 years. Yeah, exactly. So things can change. We I, might have better yeah. you know, ability to control a lot I of think these you're in the clear. physiological processes. Yeah. Um, so my favorite character in this whole thing is Paladin. I love him, her, Paladin. I love Paladin. Mm-hmm. Um, Paladin the robot Paladin who has the robot. gender issues. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I, and in our kind of society, there's such this like stigma and a fear of artificial intelligence. I think there's so many people who, because of movies and, you know, seeing things like the Avengers and, like, having, you know, a robot try to take over the world type of a thing, there's these people that are afraid of it. There, A lot of people think, like, oh, a robot like Paladin gaining knowledge is, it's bad. We don't want them to be aware. And they, a lot of people think, like, things that our phones can do now, like, I've, I've heard my parents say all the time, like, oh, that artificial, artificial intelligence in my phone. I'm like, well, that's really, like, deep learning. That's just your phone picking up patterns over and over and over again that you're doing. That's why it knows how far you are away from work and things like that. But how close do you think we are to actual, like, artificial intelligence, like Paladin, like a, a robot that has the ability to learn and comprehend? And Yeah, I, I say that Paladin is a, has human equivalent intelligence, mm-hmm. which is to say, um, you know, he has... Uh, the capacity to be totally independent and make his own decisions um, or her own decisions and um, and has emotions and, you know, really conflicted feelings, yeah. actually, uh, just like a human, um, very neurotic. Um, it's interesting because one of the very first in-depth um, science fiction stories about robots is iRobot. It's not a story, it's a collection of short stories yeah. by Isaac Asimov. And I think what people forget is that the framing device for that set of short stories is a robo-psychologist mm-hmm. whose job is to understand how robots become neurotic and break down right. um, when they have conflicting programs um, and p- conflicting commands. And I think Paladin grows out of that tradition. And in terms of how close we are to that, I think we're pretty far. Like yeah. I set the book 150 years in the future because I really don't think we're going to have robots mm-hmm. like Paladin until uh, at least a century out. Maybe more. Yeah. I mean, I think my book is optimistic. Like, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it was like 500 years mm-hmm. before we have that. Well, and and not only it being that far in the future, you actually talked about this in an event that I listened to you talk about last, yesterday, which no one else will have any reference to what I'm talking about. So good but pod- it was a really cool event. It was event. a really cool event. Good <laughs> podcasting, Adam. Um, but you talk about like people being afraid of robots, like, like Skynet type of situation. And, and that's... I, I don't think that's where, you, basically you pointed out like bots, the way that we have them today, are nowhere near that. In fact, the robots and thing that people think of robots in our kind of time are actually kind of dumb. Like it's yeah. easy to break their logic. Pretty really, you actually had, you had a few references, a couple different things, and you can talk about them if you want, the, the different, different references that you had. From this. Yeah, well one of the things that's great is that um, I recently did a story about um, 
an artist who created uh, a bot that invented paint colors yeah. based on actual paint colors and it, it was using machine learning and it was sort of it took 750 paint colors and um, tried to uh, predict what another kind of paint color would be uh -huh. and it was um, like one of my favorites one of the the colors that came up with was stanky bean it's um, incredible. Yeah, and sane green, which yeah. was actually pink. Um, so it was it was actually quite confused and, and incapable of coming up. It was capable of coming up with very funny titles, yeah. but not actual paint names. Um, and I think and a lot of other bots that people have invented um, that are based on learning from um, human data mm -hmm. on the internet. Um, those robots wind up reflecting the same prejudices that humans have. They sometimes are racist and sexist. Um, they sometimes make choices that are based on um, you know, human input rather mm -hmm. than logic uh, or rather than what we pretend is logic. And so if we actually are building robots based on machine learning, uh, which is what people are doing now, they're learning from people. And so my future has robots that are really neurotic and really confused and ambivalent just the way human beings are. And I think that's where we're headed. We're not headed to Skynet, who's like, you know, has this sort of cold, unflinching logic of like, must oppress humans. Right. Instead, these are robots who are like, where do I fit into the human world? Like, I have strange feelings about humans. Humans have weird feelings about me. How do I negotiate that? Um, and so I really think of robots as being just another form of kind of human life, almost like Neanderthals would have been, yeah. you know, just kind of another type of human that mm -hmm. looks a little different, but is basically kind of coping with all the same problems we are. I would love to pick your brain for like the next three hours about all things tech, but I know that you're very busy, so I'm not going to do that. So I'll just keep it very general and ask, what is, like, what's one of the things you're most excited right now in the science of the world? It could be a technology that someone's coming up with, it could be something we're talking about in space, like whatever, something that you're like super geek. I am most excited about self-driving cars. Yes. Because I hate to drive. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think that if we actually have self-driving cars that work, not kind of the beginnings of them like we do now, I think it's going to solve problems with traffic. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to allow us to have a more sustainable relationship with transit. It's really going to revolutionize public transit. I love public transit. I'm like a giant fan of buses and trains. Yeah. And so... That is what I think that that is going to be a huge cultural shift for us, and I really am looking forward to seeing how it changes cities and changes people's lives when they're able to have access to really good transit like that. That's incredible. Okay, so we end our podcast with we call them the Nerd Nine just because we like alliteration. Um, <laughs> there's, Me too. This is supposed to be rapid fire. They never end up being that way, but these are lighthearted, so nothing crazy. Okay. First one. What's the last book you finished reading? Uh, Walk Away by Cory Doctorow. Do you have a favorite place to read? The library. It's a good answer for a library company and a library <laughs> podcast. Um, do you have any guilty pleasures? Like mine, I tell everybody, if you go on my Instagram, there's just a disgusting amount of pictures of my dogs. Like, like an unnecessary amount. I think my biggest guilty pleasure is probably eating noodles. That's <laughs> I eat noodles as often as possible. I got ramen last night and I'm eating pasta tonight for dinner and I'm so excited about it. Um, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Coffee. Cats or dogs? Cats. If there was, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Damascus. Ooh, that's it's, one, it's the oldest continuously occupied city in the world, That's and I really hope that we can preserve it as much as possible. That is an incredible answer. Uh, you kind of answered this one, but favorite food? 
noodles. Noodles, yeah. <laughs> and then um, the one that people always yell at me for, if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you choose? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think, uh, I'm sorry, I'm taking a long time no. to pause, that's but okay. um, I think Rosalind Franklin, because I'd really like to get her side of the story on discovering the genome yeah. and like just hear, hear from her, yeah. It's such a smarter choice than mine. I always tell people mine's Jim Henson because I'm obsessed with the Muppets. Oh, yeah, no, but that's a good one. Well, I know, but mine would just be like, remember that time when you came up with Gonzo? <laughs> like, I would turn into Chris Farley from Saturday Night Live. I wouldn't have any intelligent thing to say to him. Tell so. us what you think of the new Dark Crystal yeah. prequel. <sighs> oh I'm God. excited. I'm so excited. I'm terrified about how excited I am. Actually, my I'm the youngest of four. My oldest sister uh, basically forced the Dark Crystal and the Labyrinth on me, and now I'm obsessed with it. And so I, when I got married, my wife, I was having a really bad day one day, and my wife bought them both for me on Blu-ray, and she Aww. had never seen, she'd seen Labyrinth, because everyone's seen Labyrinth, yeah. David Bowie, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. She's like, I, I want to watch that Dark Crystal with you. You're having a bad day. Let's watch it. Like, okay. And we're halfway through it, and she's like, sweetie, I love you so much. This is the weirdest movie I have ever seen in my life. I'm like, you know, you don't want to get behind the Skeksis? Come on, what are you doing? Like, she's just like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. But I am excited for the people. Yeah, so. it's going to be tough, though. It's going to be about the genocide of the Gelflings. I, so well, we're going to have to prepare ourselves. That's the problem is we all, we all, all of us Dark Crystal fans know how this is going to end. Kind of. So. Yeah. I mean, we don't, yeah, it'll be good. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. Um, all right, last question. What do you hope readers take away from reading Autonomous? I hope that they question the meaning of private property. And when you read the book, you'll see what I mean. That is perfect. Annalie, thank you so much thank for joining you. us today. Good question. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.